Welcome to a special holiday minicast edition of the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. This is Bob Gassell coming to you from Southwest Connecticut. And I'm here with my partners in crime, Noah and Matthew. And we're here to talk about some Marx Brothers books that the guys have written that you may not be aware of or at least haven't bought. And with the holiday season upon us, we're actually recording this right at the beginning of Hanukkah. We thought we may just uh, give you a little background so they could be on your radar and maybe you could pick them up. These books are available uh, on Amazon Prime, so they could come very quickly. They're also available on Kindle, so you could have them actually almost immediately. So let's bring in our co-hosts. First of all, coming to us from uh, Washington Heights, here's Mr. Noah Diamond. Ah, fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. <laughs> that doesn't sound Hebrew to me. But... <laughs> <laughs> that was the Hebrew version. I went, ah. It goes from right to left. <laughs> <laughs> and coming to us all the way from England, let's welcome in Angela Conium's husband, Matthew. <laughs> hey! Yeah, happy Hanukkah, and for our Jewish listeners, Merry Christmas. Now, before we move on to discussing the books, let's backtrack a moment and talk a little about uh, our previous uh, podcast about the big store. It seems like we're <laughs> getting a little bit of feedback. Uh, people are on us a bit for not trashing this film enough, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've never said it's. I've never said it's great or, or even even good. I've just said it's it's better than the previous two, and it's painless. That's as far as I've ever gone. It's pleasantly painless. I feel I've always felt strongly that if Leo McCary directed The Big Store, then it would be the horse feathers of Animal Crackers. No, 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 yes. no, no. <laughs> but obviously, he would have had to retitle it with an old Laurel and Hardy title. So I imagine he would have called it Two Tars. I think one of the things we keep finding, not only on the podcast, but in the in the council on Facebook, the discussions there, and just in the general life of a Marx Brothers obsessive, um, the lower quality of their later films um, is, we all know that to be true. I mean, there's a difference between your favorites and the best. And many people count the big store or any of the later films as a favorite for personal reasons. We all know that they're not the masterpieces that came earlier in their career, but they're still Marx Brothers films. And on that basis, they deserve endless granular scrutiny. I, you know, I related this story in the podcast about seeing the, the big store for the first time while I was in high school. And it was just a very down experience. And it was, I just mm. didn't want to revisit the film for, for years and decades after that, because I had such a bad memory of that experience. And then for whatever reason, when I viewed it again a few years ago, I thought, eh, yeah, eh, whatever. It's fine. Whatever. It's not yeah. any good, but it's not painful to watch. Unlike for me, uh, parts of Go West. Hmm. I assume I'm not the only one among us who, for the last week, has had "If It's You" and "Sing While You Sell" <laughs> running through his head, and not the Tenement Symphony. It didn't. Tenement Symphony <laughs> didn't work its way in, but I've been singing uh, "If It's You" and "Sing While You Sell" uh, for the since we recorded, I guess. Are there any corrections or things you left out uh, from the Big Store show that you want to squeeze in here? I don't think. Oh, here's something. We have had in the council, somebody challenged Mr. Santa Maria's assertion about Lord and Taylor. Oh, yes. And apparently... Oh, yes. I don't... I mean, I, I place all the faith in the world in Nick's authority, but I think it might have been Nick's very convincing ability as an actor that led none of us to question <laughs> mm. that uh, the Lord in Lord and Taylor was in fact the celestial Lord. 
rather than the name. But uh, someone in the council challenged that, and um, I looked it up in the authoritative Wikipedia, yes. where I uh, found that, yes, apparently Lord really was a person. Mm. So, Nick, you're going to have to come back on and we'll, we'll hash this out. The entrance credits this uh, Samuel Lord version of the story to the book Gotham, a wonderful book uh, by Burroughs and Wallace, Mike Wallace and Edwin Burroughs, um, which I've read, but I don't recall this detail. Um, so maybe maybe one of our listeners, because this is obviously crucial to our understanding of the <laughs> Marx Brothers. So as I mentioned before, with the holidays upon us, we would be remiss if we didn't join the line of people trying to separate you from your hard-earned cash. In that spirit, <laughs> let's talk about uh, Matthew and Noah's wonderful Marx Brothers books. Um, so let's start with Matthew's The Annotated Marx Brothers. Matthew, what can you tell us about this one? It's a book I wrote um, what now seems like decades ago. I suppose it was about, when did it come out? 2014? I suppose it was quite a while ago now. Um, which was sort of a kind of a dumping ground, really, for, for all the Marx Brothers work I'd done since the age of 10, really. I, um, I've sort of always dreamed of writing a book about them. Uh, and instead, I started doing a, a blog, which which a lot of people who I now count among the, the, the higher echelons of the council um, got in touch with me when I was doing my blog. And they were saying this should be a book. And our very good friend, uh, Ed Watts, uh, gave me uh, an introduction to McFarland and it became a book. And it has a, it has a subtitle, which I didn't put there the um the publishers did a film goer's guide to in jokes obscure references and slight details so it, it is that but it's also um considerably more it's also just just a you know a history of the film that is that is studded with um with things that you you won't find in in other books thanks to um the the excellent behind the scenes research done by people like ed and our good friend bob and Stuart Trister um, and a couple of others. We all sort of had a had a really lovely time behind the scenes, looking for obscure things and dragging them all out. And so it's it's a kind of um, sort of a new take in many ways on the, on their films. I think particularly the chapters on Room Service and Love Happy um, are almost completely unlike any other um, account of the film you'll find anywhere else. So it is a book I'm quite proud of, and apparently it is still selling well. But it does also go through all the, the, the references in the jokes and things which have um, become a little cloudy with the passage of time. It, it's, it casts light on those. And hopefully it's a, it's a fun book. It's not a book that takes itself too seriously, although some of its opinions have raised a hackle or two. Well, modesty prevents me from talking about how great this book is as I help do the research for it. But it is a great book. So modesty does not prevent me from saying that. And since I did not contribute to the book, but I'm a big fan of it, modesty does not prevent me from saying that it is an indispensable addition to the Marx Brothers bookshelf. It's been out for a few years, and uh, whether I w had the uh, the good fortune to be a friend and colleague of Matthew's or not, um, I would tell you it's a book that I have I constantly refer to. Um, for information as well as for entertainment to check a little detail. If there's a line in a Marx Brothers movie, someone has asked me a question about either I think, or I'm certain. No, I think, I think that's in Matthew's book and I get it out and, and find the reference. Um, and in addition to that great practical 
value of the book. Uh, it's just beautifully written. It's one of a handful of Marx Brothers books that I love as much for their great prose styling as for what they have to say about our favorite comedians. And uh, Matthew's prose is graceful and witty, and the book is an absolute pleasure. I strongly recommend it. It stands on the shelf with Adamson and all of our beloved classics. And now let's move on to Noah's required reading, Give Me a Thrill, the story of I'll Say She Is, the Lost Marx Brothers musical, and how it was found. Now, this one's available on hardcover, softcover, as well as Kindle. And, um, you know, the importance of this one can't be overstated. Um, as it focuses on the show which made the Marx Brothers stars, basically. You know, it's the one which put them in the public eye and the one which started them on their way to becoming icons. And in that context, it's the most important show they ever did. And the latter portion of the book details Noah's absolutely heroic efforts to resurrect and remount the show and make it a living, breathing part of the Marx canon and part of their vocabulary, not just be a, a dusty line in some book. Well, thank you for all that, Bob. Uh, yeah, give me a thrill. Oh, and incidentally, since Matthew did not, I, I now have just learned Matthew didn't have the privilege of writing the subtitle of his own book, but he did actually provide the subtitle of mine um, in his notes on my manuscript. Gimme a Thrill is the title, the subtitle, the story of I'll Say She Is, the Lost Marx Brothers musical, and how it was found. Oh, yeah, of how it was um, found, yeah. Which is, a, which is a nice little pun, because uh, how it was discovered, but also how it was received. Yeah, it has a theatrical structure, and the first act of the book, which is a, a good two-thirds of the, of the page length, um, is a very complete history of the original production of Alsatias. And it takes the Marx Brothers from uh, the last embers of their vaudeville career and the sort of impasse and turning point that they faced um, in the beginning of the 1920s when they were blacklisted by Albie from Big Time Vaudeville. And we're in this period of trying things, trying to make a silent movie, trying to do a legitimate musical. And they wound up quite accidentally in the Broadway hit that really made their careers. And putting the book together was a pleasure because by the time I got around to the book, I had already spent, I think, seven years uh, up to my eyebrows in research about Alsatia's for the project of recreating the show. So I had already done the research and all I had to do was, you know, put it together into a coherent chronological story. And because of the depth of that research, um, the first section of the book, the first two thirds, is, is full of new stuff that you won't find anywhere else um, except in all these original periodicals. Um, lots of great anecdotes and funny stories and witty Groucho remarks and stuff that had been lost to history. And it's a, it's a very complete and detailed account of how they got from the, um, the sort of nadir of their vaudeville come down to opening night on Broadway and beyond. And, and then the second half of the book, or it's really the, the final third of the book, is, yeah, more of a personal narrative. It traces my obsession with the Marx Brothers and how that led to the Alsatia's project. And it takes that through the writing process, how I assembled the songs, how I filled in the gaps when necessary. And it goes through opening night of the 2014 production at the New York Fringe Festival. Um, I will write about the 2016 off-Broadway production, 
when the show gets to Broadway again. I'm, I always write one step behind, <laughs> one step behind where the project actually is. Um, one of the nice things um, is people, a lot of people who have read the book have said some version of, you know, I was really interested to read the first act of the book and learn as much as there was to know about the Marx Brothers production of I'll Say She Is. And I assumed I would be less interested in the uh, sort of memoir that, that the last third of the book becomes. Uh, but uh, as it happens, I, I found the, the last third personal and moving and um, people, I think it's a nice um, testimony from somebody who loves the Marx Brothers almost too much. And uh, I've gotten a lot of nice responses to the the personal stuff too. And it's packed with pictures, um, also many of which were unearthed from uh, my research or or generously donated um, by by fellow fans and, and collectors. And uh, um, I think if you uh, pick it up sometime, you may find yourself just humming it in your sleep at night. <laughs> Give me a thrill. <laughs> yep, and and at the risk of this seeming a a, a transatlantic mutual back pat, um, I can only um, I can only join in and say yes, it uh, it is a, a a wonderfully entertaining book, and it's also. Um, one of those one of those lucky books that has has a built-in momentum to it which which obviously a, a lot of true stories uh, simply don't don't allow you allow you to have a, if, i think the the analogy i would i would draw is i think probably the the single piece of marx brothers writing that i've done so far that i'm proudest of is my online essay on humorisk uh, where we uh, found all kinds of fascinating new things about, about uh, humorists that were not known before. Uh, and they're all laid out in front of you. And then at the very end, the film is still lost. So the, 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 the first half is like that, except it's as if I then had a second half where I explained how I found humorous in a rusty old can. Uh, it's, it's, it's got that kind of wonderful energy to it because you're, it's, it's this fascinating story of the, of this play that was a smash hit and then just disappeared except for tantalizing little bits that made their way into later projects and then you you know that coming up is a second half where it's it's uh you know finally uh had the tribute paid to it that it had always deserved so it's a book that's just got that that energy to it and it's a it's a wonderful read both halves of it are equally fascinating and uh, uh yes uh, i look forward to the sequel for which i have a pun already uh already ready for the blurb <laughs> which is uh uh Many authors' books on the Marx Brothers come and go, but diamonds are forever. Oi. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the case with uh, all three of these uh, books we're talking about today. The notes and appendix at the end are just as entertaining as what comes before. So when the book is over, it's not over. <laughs> the, the, right. the notes at the end of Annotated are, are basically a second book. It's everything that, that we were still that we were still finding when you know the the, the prints the printers were actually kind of heating up. So uh, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of volume two, just just in smaller typeface. Yeah, another book with smaller print, and I I <laughs> guess um, that's traceable to Adamson as well. The when I first discovered his book. Uh, my God, reading his notes section at one point even accuses the reader of uh, waiting for a bus because why else would you be reading my end notes? Um, <laughs> the idea that you could make a book, uh, not just a good book and an informative, funny book, but also a kind of parody of serious books. Uh, it was just beautiful. 
I think it, I stole from Adamson the idea of having um, unnecessary index references as well. Isn't it Adamson that's got ZVBXRPL as, as a yes. yeah. as an index? Yeah, but yes. if you if you if you're ever really bored, if you are waiting for a bus, look through the the indexes of of my two books, and you'll find lots of. Uh, uh, silly and uh, frivolous uh, index references there. And in case anybody's wondering where my book is, uh, the one I've written about my mm. years working and being the secretary to my grandfather who thought he was Groucho Marx. Uh, still looking for a publisher for that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I laughed. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, sorry. Okay. sorry Roger. <laughs> <laughs> and to continue our circle jerk, we're going to talk about Matthew's unique That's Me Groucho. The only volume to focus on Groucho's work away from his brothers before, during, and after their career as a team. Uh, most biographies gloss over everything besides You Bet Your Life, when there are a lot of other fascinating projects Groucho did. Matthew, uh, what prompted this one? Yes, what happened there was I got to the end of, of the annotated Marx Brothers and, uh, you know, finished writing it and then it saw it through to publication and uh, the copies arrived in a, in a box and so on. And, and then I thought to myself, how can I make a quick buck off this? Oh, yes. How can I write something that's really cheap and uh, kind of soils the uh, – no, I didn't. What I what I thought was um, I'd like to do another Marx Brothers book because um, obviously it is one of my many passions. It's probably my, my greatest passion. And the annotated Marx Brothers was, was, a, was the book I had to write. That's me, Groucho. I thought was was a book that that somebody should write, and I might as well be the one to do it, because it's um, again, it's sort of two books in one. It is a history of Groucho's uh, solo career, which is full of again, uh, lots and lots of new things that you won't find in in other books about about the things he did and the things he almost did in particular. Um, but it's also there to kind of make a point or to make two points. One of which is that that essentially, in his own mind, Groucho was was always a solo performer. He started. Started as a solo performer and he ended as a solo performer and the Marx Brothers years I think he always thought of as something he was just passing through and I think when you understand that you understand him a lot better uh, and a lot of things that he did that seem difficult to explain or even a little um, callous perhaps uh, in relation to the two uh, for instance Chico's desire to continue working as a team sort of come into a slightly greater degree of clarity. Mm -hmm. And that also gave me a, a mission because I, I, I get the feeling that it's sort of open season on Groucho. Just before my book came out, Lee Siegel's book uh, on Groucho came out and it was the most uh, anti-Groucho book you know, that one could almost imagine. And what I think we're seeing there is a kind of a, a negative snowball. Um, Groucho isn't a terribly interesting man. I mean, that's just the bottom line. He was a kind of an ordinary man. And that doesn't seem right. The real Groucho should be more like the film Groucho. So I think biographers have quite naturally gone looking for anything to, to spice him up a bit, particularly when in real life, his brothers Harpo and Chico were both so fascinating. He's kind of an invisible man. So I think the little things that they've been able to find, they've exaggerated. And then the next book comes along and it picks up on those and it exaggerates them some more. And then Stefan Kampfer comes along and he exaggerates a little more and then, and so on and so on. And Lee Siegel in the end has him as a kind of a demonic figure. And I think when, when you go back to basics, he, he's not, he's, he's a, for the most part an ordinary man he has very very understandable human faults and he's basically a decent man who wanted to do 
good, who wanted to do good things uh, and tried and sometimes failed, as we all do. So it's also an attempt to to slightly rehabilitate the the, the biographical image of Groucho as as um, a, a terrible father and a terrible husband and a and a, and a generally uh, unthinking caddish fellow so it has a sort of an agenda to it as well and i was very lucky to be able to end with an anecdote that's never appeared anywhere else uh that was told to me by somebody who knew him when she was a child about him behaving with with utmost decency and if you haven't read it i won't i won't spoil it but this is a completely off-duty groucho there are no cameras uh nobody told the story he never he never said anything of it it's just the private groucho behaving in a most impeccably decent way so i like to think of it as my little um my little salute to groucho and 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 an effort you know a minor effort at, at rehabilitation it's also got some excellent appendices noah writes a beautiful piece on his mustache the evolution of his mustache and via mm-hmm. Jay Hopkins, there are some never-before-published interviews with uh, the likes of Nat Perrin and even, yes, Erin <gasps> Fleming. Hmm. And if you have a fetish for napkins, you won't want to miss it. Absolutely. Book. <laughs> yeah. I, perhaps my favorite piece of uh, writing uh, by Matthew is one of the appendices in, in That's Me, Groucho, which is Matthew's own appendix, um, which is entitled... Uh, Yes, you, <laughs> I'm setting up a, a surgery joke, I can tell right now. <laughs> Matthew's appendix is just, it's a perfect appendix. Uh, it's called the Groucho Marx Theory of Creativity. And um, I've read it several times. I, I really love that essay. I love the whole book, of course, as I do uh, all of Matthew's writing. But um, the Groucho Marx Theory of Creativity is a very thought-provoking essay um, about uh, I, it's about many things, but um, for me, it's about what might have been going on in Groucho's head, uh, the the actual source of the comedic impulse that we can identify as his, uh, no matter whose lips it's on. Um, I, I I join uh, you, Bob, in your praise of uh, this book and, and particularly that essay. Uh, it's wonderful, and I have a nice appendix too. <laughs> So before we go, uh, Matthew, Noah, do you have any other works that our listeners may be interested in? Probably not that they'd be interested in, but I've also I've written a, a slim volume on uh, the uh, 18th century English novelist Jane Austen, uh, sorry, 19th century English novelist Jane Austen, um, called Inside Her Novels, which is just a sort of a look at her creative impulse or something or other and uh, also a book called egyptomania goes to the movies which tells the the uh, often uh, ludicrous story of how uh, the discovery of the tomb of tutankhamun uh, influenced uh, popular culture in the 1920s and how it drew on previous waves of, of egyptomania in, in earlier centuries uh, and there's lots of some funny colorful stories about the, the various oddballs that uh, latched onto that to that um, that craze I've got a book called Love Marches On, which is uh, a work of fiction told in the form of comic strips. It was originally published as a daily comic strip in 2013, and the book collects the whole story, the whole uh, serial, and also has a, a lengthy section at the end with lots of supplementary material. But it's a story about show business and history. It's It's set in... Times Square, in and around Times Square, in two time periods, 1925 and 1975. So it's against the backdrop of two very different versions of the Midtown Manhattan 
cultural district. Um, and I think uh, if you're interested in the Marx Brothers, you you might find a lot to like and love Marx's on it. It uh, it references them occasionally, and the original impetus to write it came from the same place. All the research I had done on Alsatias gave me all this good stuff on the twenties that wasn't uh, didn't really have a place in Alsatias, but um, I, I found Love Marches On to be a good good place to put lots of stuff I had learned along the way about. Texas Guinan and speakeasy culture in the 20s and so on. Um, and then uh, my first book is called 400 Years in Manhattan. It's based on a solo theatrical show that I did in 2007, um, of which uh, there may hopefully be a new version soon. Um, anyway, one of my uh, many day jobs over the years has been as a New York City tour guide. And 400 Years in Manhattan is a potted history of the city, along with a little memoir about uh, my, my life as a tour guide. Um, that's a good gift, too, for anyone who's interested in New York. And at my website, noahdiamond.com, there's a store section where you can find yeah, uh, all of my books. You can also find Matthew's books there, uh, as well as lots of books that I just like, things I recommend, and uh, books by other friends of mine and, and people I've been lucky enough to know. Uh, so you can find it all there. You know, it just occurred to me that the people who are listening to this podcast should be the uh, recipients of these books rather than the uh, the givers. So I guess everyone make sure that uh, you put this where your wife or husband or kid or mistress or whoever <laughs> uh, will be able to hear it. And to be a little self-serving podcast-wise, these books really will come in handy for your enjoyment here because we refer to them quite often. And if you do enjoy the books, uh, no author minds a positive review on Amazon. Say a few words and give us just as many stars as they will let you. Um, that's always helpful uh, to uh, um, authors and, and, and struggling literary folks like us. Um, come to think of it, if you like this podcast, send us a Christmas present by giving us a positive review on iTunes or the podcast venue of your choice. And yes, and if you know anybody who might like the podcast but doesn't know about the podcast, then do please uh, let them know, spread the word, spread those links, get uh, references to it wherever you can so that people uh, who, who don't know us will be intrigued and will, will listen in. Obviously, we will be back next year. We've got uh, many, 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 many more. Uh, we, may, we may be back a little sooner than that. Oh, yes, yes. But, but I mean, the, through the year, we will continue. Um, but it would be nice, I think, just to say thank you to everyone who's been with us so far, who's, who's listened in and uh, had things to say. And it's been largely, by and large, positive. Um, that's been great. Uh, do, do stick with us. Thank you also to all our guests that we've had. Um, see if I can remember them all. Nick Santa Maria, Andrea Orlando, Cinco Paul, Frank Ferrante, Stuart Tristair. Oh, and uh, Les Marston. Tom Rocks. And Joe Adamson, who was the only uh, guest we've had so far, who um, was interviewed while snorkeling. Yes. <laughs> oh, and also Gabby, Nick's cat. We have. Yes. Ah. Who ah. We're, we're hoping to tempt back on her own without Nick, just as a, as a, as a, as a special guest. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, before we leave, I want to just make sure that everybody is aware that 2019 is going to be the year that we find out the identity of the manicurist we're going to be calling in all of our yes uh all of our hollywood friends we're talking to, to you scott and cinco and joe and everybody else we're, we're going to get on this and by the end of 2019 we're going to uh find out the name of that damn manicurist 
because we know that somewhere in California, an elderly woman is sitting in a rocking chair cradling a film canister containing a print of humor risk, and that woman is the yep. manager. <laughs> Filing her nails as she sits and rocks. <laughs> and we stopped recording for a couple minutes to see if we could find some uh, Merck-themed <laughs> holiday music to play at the end, uh, and we failed. So instead of something holiday-themed, we are going to leave you with this. <laughs> Do the work so we don't care It's clippity-clop Just clippity-clop Riding the rain Together It's a lonesome road And mighty long But the hoof beats Make a mighty pretty song Of the clippity-clop you think this riding, this constant riding, is something that can't be done. But all day Sunday, we got till Monday just to ride around for fun. Is free, and there's nothing breaking the monotony of clippity-clop. I sure like horses, and I say a horse is really a man's best friend. Wah, wah, wah. You won't like riding when you start riding, but it gets you in the end. Father shot at the Indians in 1862. Oh, he sure the shot at the stalker when the stalker he brought to you. Clippity-clop. Oh, my heart is beating. Clippity-clop. 